Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey there, podcast listeners. It's Kathleen. I wanted to tell you about a brand new investigative podcast from USG Audio. It's called Art Bust. And each episode explores scandals, crimes, or cons in the art world. The series just launched, and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. But here's episode one, just to get you hooked. It's a balmy May in New York, and the night of one of the most important auctions of the year. If there's a movie to be made about this, it should start with the scene of that evening auction. The who's who of the contemporary art scene are rubbing shoulders at Christie's, a prestigious auction house. It's all air kisses and champagne toasts, Gucci handbags and Rolex watches. And beneath the festive glitz, huge sums of money are at stake. Standing room only, uh, ticketed seats, and you're in a sales room that have these private boxes overhead where you have some clients that can't be seen, that are looking at the action below. The bidding's about to start. The glamorous take their seats and grip their paddles. Lot 12B pool with two figures by David Hockney. Beautiful painting from 1972. Up for auction, a painting by David Hockney. One of the many versions of Liz Taylor by Andy Warhol. A Roy Lichtenstein cartoon of a kiss. It's some of the best and most expensive art in the world. $3 million? Anyone for $3 million? Each sell in a matter of minutes. Millions gone with a silent raise of a paddle and the quick bang of a gavel. Sold. It's yours for $4 million. Intently watching it all is a young art dealer named Inigo Philbrick, probably sweating inside his designer Italian suit. Because up next is Lot 33B, artist Rudolf Stingel's painting titled Untitled. Depending on how these next few moments go, Inigo will either continue to live in the glamorous world of million-dollar art deals or trade his fine Italian silk for an orange jumpsuit. Hi, I'm Ben Lewis. Welcome to Art Bust, scandalous stories of the art world. I've been writing and making movies about art for over 20 years. The art world isn't just high culture, big money and creative genius. In this series, we pull back the curtain on some of the art world's ugliest crimes and biggest scandals, and the murky in between. And when it comes to the story of Inigo Philbrick, well, there's no shortage of scandal here.
Inigo Philbrick has been called a mini Madoff, another living, breathing example of the corrupt interpretation of the American dream. Or is it more accurate to say he's the next bad actor on a growing list of millennial con artists, joining the ranks of Anna Delvey, Elizabeth Holmes, and the Fire Festival crew, for whom a good scam is big business? There's also a third choice. Is Inigo just an ambitious kid who, in an effort to swim with the big fish, found himself in way over his head? I find myself staring at photos of Inigo. He's young, handsome, perfectly dressed in sharp suits with a neat five o'clock shadow. He looks confident. I mean, it takes a lot of guts, or maybe just arrogance. Or a fear of failure so profound that it breeds bravado to project that level of success, to start playing in the big leagues, millions of dollars on the line, as a mere twenty-something. From my experience reporting on the art world, the kind of games people play in the often secretive and relatively unregulated art market are high stakes and high risk, and you don't always survive unscathed. Inigo Philbrick was born in 1987 in the quiet upper-class town of Reading, Connecticut. As is so often the way with precocious wannabe art dealers, he came from an art world family. His father, Harry Philbrick, is a highly regarded museum director and co-founder of the Philadelphia Contemporary Art Museum. His mother, Jane, is an artist, writer, and lecturer. In 2006, when Inigo was in his late teens, his parents divorced. Some say it was an event that had a lasting impact. I heard from people that、um, Harry Philbrick and Inigo's mother Jane had a,、um, a really nasty divorce. Eileen Kinsella is the senior market editor at Artnet, a leading online publication for the art world. And that after it was over, that Inigo was very bitter towards his father.、Uh, he felt that his father sort of abandoned his mother, and then you know took his mother's side and was very close with her and very protective of her. A year after the divorce, and despite Inigo's alleged bitterness towards his father, he followed in his dad's footsteps. Inigo crossed the pond in 2007 to attend the senior Philbrick's alma mater, the prestigious Goldsmiths University in London, an incubator for the art world elite. This is where Inigo met his college sweetheart, a Buenos Aires-born student by the name of Francesca Mancini. A few years later, right after graduating Goldsmiths, Inigo landed an internship at the leading London gallery called White Cube. He was 23. At White Cube, he quickly set himself apart, or rather above, when he was taken under the wing of legendary art dealer Jay Jopling. Art dealers are critical go-betweens. They represent artists, and they often broker deals between sellers and buyers. Mega dealers like Jay Joplin are global brands. He was seen as Jay's protege. Artnet's Eileen Kinsella. It's like an unknown actress getting cast in a Scorsese movie. Like usually, when twenty-somethings get a job at, at galleries, it's it's not as like with a direct line to the main person, you know. Seemingly overnight, this kid became a fixture in the high-stakes, high-dollar world of the contemporary art market. With millions to spend, with the raise of a paddle. 
In 2013, Jay Joplin set up a new gallery space in Mayfair, one of the chicest neighbourhoods in London. At just 26 years old, Inigo took it over and named it the Inigo Philbrick Gallery. As Inigo continued to rise up the ranks of the art world, he settled down with his college sweetheart Francesca, who, by this point, was an art historian with her own perfume line. A combination of professions I must admit I haven't previously encountered in my career as an art reporter. They had a baby daughter together. Everyone who knew Inigo loved Inigo, and everyone who didn't know him wanted to. You know, he has a kind of like uh, Gatsby aura about him. Judd Tully's a veteran reporter and art market analyst. And Judd's the only person who's met Inigo who agreed to speak to me about him on the record. I was very interested in meeting him because, you know, it's like a new face in the art world. And then I started seeing Inigo everywhere. Art fairs in London, Basel, Switzerland... New York, and so on. And, um, and as one does sometimes, kind of rubbing shoulders occasionally in the kind of ultra-wealthy world, Inigo made his presence noted at this uh, famous hotel in Basel where basically Inigo was holding court and drinking champagne and buying champagne for people, etc., etc., but Inigo was more than just a charming kid who could hold court. He was also extremely knowledgeable about art. Oliver Franklin Wallace is a British journalist who spent more than six months investigating the Inigo Philbrick story. He gets a great reputation among his clients. He's making the money. Um, a, a few of his clients said to me that they had great relationships with him early on. He always seemed to know uh, what was coming up on the market. You know, he, he had these great connections. Uh, he had this great eye for what was going to you know, be hot in six months' time or in a year's time. And he, you know, he did really well. Really, really well. On the surface, Inigo had it all. A beautiful family, dizzying success, professional respect, and the inside track to becoming the next big art dealer in contemporary art. The artist Inigo considers himself to be the foremost expert on is a painter named Rudolf Stingel. Inigo even referred to himself as Stingel Damas at parties. Later, when he was, uh, he had a, a very uh, slick uh, gallery in Mayfair and had a Rudolf Stingel exhibition. Art market analyst Judd Tully. And I walked in with a friend. And Inigo was there, and he just sort of popped up and just sort of gave this 10-minute treatise on the work of Rudolf Stingel. There's something strangely appropriate about Inigo specialising in Stingel. I'm not sure quite how to explain it to you, but imagine you're standing in front of a large Stingel painting. Five foot by five foot, shining gold, because it's actually covered in gold leaf. But the surface is full of little scratches and marks, as if people have scrawled on it, like it's a stall in a public toilet. Or, more appropriate for this story, maybe a prison wall. From afar, it looks shiny, but close up you can see that it's dirty, stained, marked, worn away, crumbling. 
that's the contradiction Stingle plays with again and again, and it's a great metaphor for this story. The art world looks so beautiful and glamorous on the surface, but on closer examination, well, it can be a pretty unsavoury place. But let's not leave the glamour just yet, because at this point, Inigo shone like that gold-leaf painting. Journalist Oliver Franklin Wallace. Everyone says that he's this incredibly suave young man. He's got this very erudite way about him, these, these strawberry blonde curls, which means that he's immediately identifiable in a room. But beneath Inigo's charm, there was a killer instinct. One of the people who worked with Inigo at White Cube early on told me that it was like looking into the eyes of a shark. You know, he had this killer personality and he was ruthless to an extent. He would go to meetings with people and all that he would talk about is the money, the money, the money. And ultimately, it was exactly that, the money, that got Inigo into trouble. You see, there's two parts to the Inigo story. There's the part about high risk, but nothing illegal. And there's the part about fraud he's alleged to have committed. No one has heard his side of the story, but if the allegations are true, that's totally illegal. Let me start with the risk. As with real estate, there's something called flipping in the art world too. In order to flip successfully, you want to buy low, sell high and sell quickly. But from what I can tell, Inigo actually didn't buy low. He bought in the middle to high end of the market and therefore needed to sell even higher. So from the very start, Inigo needed money, lots of money, just to get in the game. He turned to investors people who went in on the paintings with him. I mean, flipping is the great dirty secret of the art world. Everyone looks down on flippers. Everyone acts as if it's this dirty thing that no one does, but everyone is doing it. The art world is loath to cop to flipping because art is supposed to be a meaningful cultural touchstone, not a crass commodity to trade in. And let me make this clear. Flipping is perfectly legal. We live in a capitalist society after all. But it's risky. The shortlist of artists whose prices are going up is always shifting. When the prices tail off, which they often do, that formerly hot artist's work can sink by millions. So buyers are left with a painting they bought for 20 million last month, say, that they can only sell for 11 million this month. Eileen Kinsella from Artnet. It goes with the whole thing of things being trendy and in demand one day and people you know, flipping it, it's like musical chairs sometimes. When you're an art dealer playing the flipping game with multi-million dollar pieces, a few instances of buying too high or selling too low can mean losing a lot of money. Inigo wasn't necessarily betting on Stingle just because he liked the work, though he may have, of course. Most likely, he was betting on Stingle because other players much bigger than him were also betting on Stingle, like the owner of Gucci, for example. To give you an idea of the Stingle wave, in 2009, a picture of his sold for $362,000. Fast forward six years and it went for $1.7 million. That's a 500% increase. It, it becomes pretty clear that from the outset, his, his ambition is, is to 
be as successful as he can as quickly as possible. In 2015, it appears Inigo saw a chance to buy a Stingle. It's a painting of a photograph of Picasso. Yes, a painting of a photograph of a painter, the most famous painter of the 20th century. The art world just loves this kind of ironic play on fame. According to a lawsuit filed in 2019, Inigo convinced a pair of collectors from Berlin to buy the painting. They paid $7.1 million for it. Then, Inigo promised to flip it within 18 months. I've seen the contract as it's now part of court documents filed by the Germans. Inigo said he'd sell it for $9 million. Since all these deals have come under scrutiny, Inigo has become the subject of an FBI investigation. The FBI suspect that he didn't stop there with the Stingle, but went on to sell some of the painting again, to a friend this time, claiming he, Inigo, owned the other half. For me, the big thing is, when things start to go wrong, most people would... You know, they'd cop to that, they would say, OK, I've got a problem, they would try and find a way out, a, a kind of a legal way out of it. But in a world without many rules, where's the legal line? At this point, Inigo has allegedly sold the same painting twice, and the FBI claims Inigo still didn't stop there. Their investigation asserts that Inigo then bundled the Stingle in 2017 with a few other pieces of art and made a deal with another collector he knew, Lisa Rubin, daughter of one of the London property billionaires, the Rubin brothers. We saw an email from Inigo about this sale. In the email, Inigo tells the storage facility holding the painting that he's transferring full ownership of the piece of art to Lisa. You'd think this could have been cleared up by collectors just taking possession of the paintings they bought. But in the fast-paced business of flipping, just because you purchase it, it doesn't mean it's hanging over your couch. More often than not, the art sits in some generic offshore facility so no one has to pay any sales tax or customs duties. All this time, Inigo had the Stingle in a storage centre somewhere in Switzerland. None of the buyers ever saw it in the flesh. The art world is kind of this rarefied realm that is walked only by the world's richest elites. And they trade these artworks worth tens of millions of dollars as if they're kind of pieces of paper. In a lot of cases, it wasn't really about the art at all. The art was almost like a financial instrument that was just being traded back and forth. So it's pretty easy to see that a bunch of investors could think they owned the same artwork. So it's the incredibly, this incredibly labyrinthine world, um, which makes it pretty impenetrable. Inigo may have played this game, but he certainly didn't invent it. At least three other major art dealers have been convicted of committing this kind of fraud in the last few years. Here's Judd Tully. He's not the first um, art dealer that I've known personally that got into this kind of quicksand situation. At this point, Inigo seemed to be in over his head. But like a disheveled gambler at a late-night Vegas table, something I have a limited experience of, Inigo seemed to hit instead of fold. And his next move, well, it was truly audacious. 
In late 2018, Inigo opened a second gallery, this time in Miami. It was extremely splashy. The rent alone was $30,000 a month. Artnet's Eileen Kinsella. And then it starts with like these whispers about, I hear they don't pay people, or I heard that maybe they're like expanding too fast or, or in over their head, or they're like, you know, this, this big Miami gallery in addition to the London gallery, it's a lot. How is he doing this? Where is he getting his money from? Miami is not the first place that you might think of if you want to be an art dealer moving up in the world. You know, you might think of going to New York or, or Paris or somewhere. Um, but to be honest, Miami is where the money is. But Miami isn't just known for its money. As journalist Oliver Franklin Wallace described, it's also known for its decadent party scene. And it's this kind of bombastic, exciting, dynamic city, plays into Inigo's love of kind of fast living and partying. You know, people said that he spent very extravagantly, from what I understand, like um, everything from flying private jets everywhere to bottle service at nightclubs. He was definitely not, you know, not without flash and not without trying to like impress people, whether it was, you know, the watch that he wore or the clothes that he wear or the clubs that he went to. I was told that in the uh, the design district in Miami, he, he had plans for expansion. He wanted a bigger space. He wanted a, a place that would kind of be like a hangout place. Like he was modeling it on some of his favorite restaurants there. So he definitely had plans to sort of, I think, expand beyond just being the gallery and being kind of, you know, like you look, look at dealers like, like Jay Joplin, or, or who we talked about, who have this kind of aura about them. Like not only are they super successful guys but they're they're also super smart and kind of mysterious and you know everybody wants to buy from them and they're they're kind of a brand in themselves it seemed like that was that was what he was gunning for up until this point one of the constants in Inigo's world was his longtime romantic partner and the mother of his child Francesca but in 2018 they abruptly broke up so yeah, Inigo's personal life and his kind of collapse, his, his, his um, eventual unraveling, seem to be really closely linked. And it's hard to know precisely to what extent for, you know, each influenced the other. But what we do know uh, is pretty clear. So um, she and Inigo broke up. And um, I couldn't work out the reason behind that split. But um, almost immediately after that, within a period of a few months... Um, Inigo starts seeing Victoria Baker Harbour um, from Maiden Chelsea. Oh my God, it smells as bad as Lucy's breath does. Victoria Baker Harbour is a British Instagram celebrity who comes from a wealthy family. And the reality show she stars in, Made in Chelsea, it's a classic British series about rich kids behaving badly. Stop being a bitch. Fucking open your fucking fat fucking mouth, you fucking fat turkey. In the spring of 2019, less than six months after opening his Miami gallery, Inigo's problems exploded at centre stage for all of his peers to see. Remember those 18 months he promised the Germans it would take to sell the Picasso Stingle at a higher price? Well, they were long past. But in email after email, he convinced them to hold tight. 
This isn't to make you feel obligated to stay in the work, but rather that I do feel we are in a super strong position if we can bide our time. Here are a few excerpts of those emails Inigo sent to the German collectors, starting in February 2018. I am well aware that the biggest frustration in our relationship comes from stress about money. I will come back to you on the Picasso painting, as I think there is an opportunity to do something for May, which will realize us a very strong price. These emails are included in the allegations by the Germans against Inigo in their civil lawsuit. In another email to the Germans, Inigo suggests they wait to sell the Stingle at the high-profile Christie's auction in May, pushing the promise to sell for a good price even further down the road. I have been advancing a conversation with Christie's regarding our Stingle Picasso painting. They, and increasingly I, feel there is an opportunity in May to set a new world auction record for the artist with the painting. After more back and forth, the Germans agree to move forward with the auction. Two months later, in May, the big night arrived. So you have you know, a number of people sitting in the same room, each believing he's the owner of an artwork. Judd Grossman is an art lawyer who represents two of the parties who thought this stingle was theirs. If the painting sold for a high number, it would buy Inigo some time. It would mean Inigo had enough cash to give a partial payment to everyone he owed for the stingle that he promised to flip. And if it didn't sell, well... Lot 33B came up. Let's recreate the scene for you. Lot 33B, 2012's Stingle Picasso. The painting was actually there at the auction. A slightly perplexed-looking Picasso stared over the crowd. Let's start at four million, four million for the Stingle. It took a beat too long to get moving. Now how about four million, two hundred thousand? But then bids came in. Four million three, four million four, four million five hundred thousand? There was another pause. We're at five million five hundred thousand. Anyone, sir? How about you again? The auctioneer leaned over toward the original bidder, beseeching him to return. But it was not to be. Selling for 5.5? Sold. Stingles Picasso for $5,500,000. In just over a minute, the painting sold for less than the Germans originally paid for it. Inigo's rise was fast, but his fall was truly breathtaking. He was a top uh, sales associate with one of the finest galleries in the world. And then when he went off on his own with backing, um, he was able to achieve some great success. But, you know, you don't build that success overnight. He was looking for some uh, meteoric rise to stardom and fame and wealth. Uh, and that's uh, not always so easily accomplished. He was loved by the art market. And then everything came crumbling down. You do see that trajectory where people get completely carried away about building their success and building like their own kind of legacy and they seem to lose all sight of, of reality. Five civil suits were filed between 2019 and 2020, which includes not only the German suit, but Inigo's friends lawsuit as well. They're all quite complicated. They involve various collectors fighting over who owns what. 
it should be noted that Inigo has yet to respond to any of them. Till then, as we've mentioned before, we don't know his side of the story. Judd Grossman, the attorney representing several of Inigo's former clients and friends, told us about the fallout from that fateful Christie's auction. Uh, they felt violated. Um, th- this was someone who they, they trusted. And so not only did he steal their, their, their property and their money, but he stole their, their trust. Uh, and that's a difficult thing for anybody to swallow. It's still unclear who legally owns what. Only a few of the lawsuits are actually between Inigo and a collector. Most are collector on collector. It reminds me of the last scene in Pulp Fiction, but with lawyers and not guns. An unprecedented standoff in the art world. Missing the man at the centre of it all. Because Inigo left the country. You know, I had heard rumours from time to time that he might be in Australia or uh, that he had been in Japan. Picture a tiny tropical island. And if you'll permit me a moment of fancy, imagine a scruffy and linen-clad man sauntering along the beach, hand in hand with his beautiful girlfriend. They appear not to have a care in the world. But below the surface, things aren't as perfect as they look. What I heard was that um, in the week before the arrest, there had been federal agents uh, sort of prowling around the area where he lived and uh, showing people pictures of a white male on a laptop and asking other locals, have you seen this person? Do you know who he is? Inigo and Victoria Baker Harbour were living on Vanuatu, a southwestern Pacific Ocean island nation and the setting of the ninth season of Survivor. This tiny chain of islands was the perfect getaway for them. Until it wasn't. On June the 11th, 2020, a slew of FBI agents descended on Vanuatu. The day that he was caught, he was uh, shopping in, um, in, the, in the main town in the, uh, on the island called Port Vila. And uh, a person who was there at the time just said all of a sudden his, his face went white and a bunch of men had pulled up in cars wearing different uniforms. And they jumped out and said, are you in a go? And he said yes. And when he did, they grabbed him and they hustled him into a car and took off for the airport. Within days of the FBI sting, Inigo Philbrick was loaded onto a Gulfstream jet, flying back to America to face the music. On April the 30th, 2020, criminal charges were brought against him. He was indicted for wire fraud and aggravated identity theft. Wire fraud for illegally wiring money, including funds for the Stingle painting, and aggravated identity theft for falsely signing documents using someone else's name. As of this recording, Inigo is being held at the Metropolitan Detention Centre in Brooklyn, awaiting trial. If found guilty, he could face more than 20 years in federal prison. I've contacted Inigo's lawyers numerous times and they promise to call me back, but they never do. Hi, Mr. Lewis. So sorry to keep you holding. I did confirm that uh, your message was received and that he has indicated that he will be in contact with you as soon as possible. So sorry about the delay. 
July 2020, Inigo's lawyer at the time told media that Inigo pleaded not guilty to the criminal charges. He also said that Inigo, quote, asks those who know him or know of him to withhold judgment until the criminal justice process plays out. For six months, I tried to get hold of Inigo or someone close to him who could help tell Inigo's side of the story. I sent Inigo a letter, snail mail, to his prison. No response. I also reached out to Victoria Baker Harbour, who got back to me over Instagram, but ultimately would not agree to an interview. We do know, however, that she is standing by Inigo, that she loves him, and that she thinks he's the fall guy for bigger players. That Inigo was simply an ambitious young dealer who had a hard time saying no to people. Someone who wanted to make himself and his clients a lot of money. One has to wonder if this argument will ultimately be part of his defence. On November the 6th, 2020, Victoria confirmed over email that she'd given birth to her and Inigo's child a daughter named Gaia Grace. A month later, Victoria and the baby were featured in the pages of Hello! magazine. Victoria told Hello! that the birth was bittersweet because the father of her child was still stranded thousands of miles away in an American prison. Let's see if I can find 22 Davies Street. I'm in the Mayfair neighbourhood where it all started, the place that Inigo launched his career, to see if there's any trace of the ghost I've been chasing. 22. Sunseeker, London, new boats, brokerage. Oh my God, some really nice yachts, God. More than a year after the fateful auction that sent Inigo on the run, the space that once held the Inigo Philbrick Gallery is no more than an empty storefront looking for its next tenant. Meanwhile, the entire art world and the US government are still clamouring to figure out the scope of Inigo's alleged crimes. Lawyer Judd Grossman believes there's still a lot to uncover. I think there are dozens of works that are involved, and when you tally up the value of those works and perhaps others, in my opinion, the scale of the fraud exceeds the $50 million threshold. I feel like I'm in this constant battle of, was he, how did he start out? Was he just hoping? Did he start out with good intentions? And in the beginning, I thought that um, more and more that I've read and, and learned, I don't think that. I think that he was just playing a game that he thought he could continue playing on forever and you know I'm also conflicted if the allegations are true and Inigo did indeed commit a fraud of this scale isn't he just another millennial con artist an arrogant scam merchant who flew too close to the sun and got burned so why do I feel kind of sorry for him I think when it comes down to it he got in over his head the fact is that this story raises as many questions about the entire art market as it does about Inigo Philbrick. The system is opaque with few checks and balances, and it seems everyone is okay with that. They're willing to engage in these high-stakes, high-risk games with the hope of a massive payout. 
Inigo has yet to stand trial, and we know he's pleaded not guilty to the criminal charges. The judge should also look at his clients, the plaintiffs, and ask, did they take too many risks buying art they never laid eyes on? Were they careless in their rush to turn a quick profit? Did they ask for enough proof of who owned what? In legal terms, did they perform due diligence? I think one of the changes that either will or should see come out of this is, is people being much more rigorous in asserting control or possession over the artwork that they either own outright or are investing in with others. What Inigo did, or is alleged to have done, seems widespread in the art world. That hidden arena of art dealing is a wild west of sorts with not enough rules. It's just a question of who can keep the ruse up for longer. In the meantime, the game goes on. Like Eileen said, it's musical chairs. And the last time the music stopped, the mysterious Inigo Philbrick was the one left standing. I wonder... Who will be next? Next time on Art Bust, Scandalous Stories of the Art World. I would like the unconditional restitution of our heritage. I would like these things to come home. I would like the European and Western countries, including the United States, to recognize their crimes. We're exploring the timely and hot-button issue of looted African artifacts, the calls to return them to their countries of origin, and the prominent museums at the center of the controversy. It is painful because you know that is something that was that belongs to you, that was created here by people that come from where you come from, and understanding that you have no power, no control over it. This episode was senior produced by Ainsley Vogel and Debbie Pacheco. It was produced by Sarah Winter and myself. Our associate producer is Jacob Lewis. Mix and sound design by Mitchell Stewart. Voice acting by Angelique Papadopoulos and Jacob Lewis. Our executive producers are Kathleen Goldhar, Katrina Onstad, Stuart Cox and Jago Lee. Our USG audio team includes Jessica Grimshaw, Josh Block, Jennifer Sears and Daniel Welsh. And I'm your host, Ben Lewis. This is an Antica Productions podcast in collaboration with USG Audio. For more information, go to usgaudio.com. That was the first episode of USG's podcast, Art Bust. To hear more, you can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. 
New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.